Well, we are in a series uh, through the Acts of the Apostles that we've titled Turning the World Upside Down, uh, based on a text in, uh, I think, the 17th chapter of Acts, if I'm not mistaken. Our title today is Character and Courage. We're in Acts 6, 8 to 15. And I want to take a moment uh, before we read the Scripture together uh, to consider where our study in the Acts of the Apostles uh, has brought us thus far. Uh, first of all, at the very beginning of the book, Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, we see him ascend into heaven. Matthias has been appointed to take the place of Judas Iscariot among the twelve apostles. Uh, the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church on that first feast of Pentecost uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, just uh, a matter of a week or two after his ascension. The growing church has been established as a vital community. Its mission has continued to grow. The gospel is being proclaimed. Uh, The apostles are working miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for the purpose of validating their message. The number of the believers is swelling so that uh, if you do the math based on the numbers Luke gives us, there are probably now somewhere in the vicinity of 20,000 who have heard the message of the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And now surprisingly, opposition has, has now arisen and uh, is intensifying against the church from the Jewish religious leadership, resulting in imprisonments, uh, commands to cease preaching and teaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And uh, it's starting to reach a fever pitch. Satan has attempted to corrupt and divide the church from within, thereby to derail its life and mission. But the uh, wise and godly leadership of the apostles has thus far averted disaster as they've followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And up until now, the church has been composed only of Jews and restricted to Jerusalem. But reading just a little further ahead, it becomes clear that the church now stands, and this is kind of where we are right at this moment uh, in our text, that the church stands on the cusp of being launched beyond the city of Jerusalem, out into the province of Judea, beyond that into the province of Samaria, and and then into its wider mission in the world. And then in the next few chapters... Luke's going to provide us with vivid glimpses into how the the foundation was laid for the mission to the Gentiles, people like you and me, non-Jews, by by two remarkable men in particular. First of all, Stephen, uh, the martyr, and Philip, the evangelist, uh, followed by two remarkable conversions, Saul the Pharisee and Cornelius the the Roman centurion. And together with the apostle uh, Peter, these four men, each in his own way, contributes to um, what is needed in this moment for the global expansion of the church. Uh, Luke gives attention first to Stephen, whom we met briefly last week, whom we'll get to know much better today and even better next week. In chapter 8, we'll grow for in our appreciation for Philip, who, like Stephen, was one of the seven who were chosen to uh, administer the distribution of food and resources to the widows in the church in Jerusalem. He was also an evangelist who had the distinction of being both the first to share the gospel with the Samaritans and and then breaking down yet another ethnic barrier, this time between the Jews and Samaritans. He's also the first to lead an African 
a eunuch from Ethiopia to personal faith in Jesus Christ and then has the privilege of baptizing that man. In chapter 9, we're going to see the simultaneous conversion and commissioning of Saul the Pharisee, uh, who later becomes known as Paul the Apostle, um, as an essential prelude then to the, the mission to the Gentiles, since he was called to be first and foremost the Apostle to the Gentiles. And then in chapters 10 and 11, Cornelius the Roman centurion will become the, the very first Gentile to be converted, Welcomed into the church, Cornelius receives the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which indicates and authenticates for the apostles his inclusion in the Christian community with the same standing as the Jewish believers. So there's a whole bunch coming just in the next few chapters. So buckle your seatbelts, put a helmet on, because these next chapters are are going to bring radical change. It's going to bring disruption to kind of the relative quietness Uh, that has been enjoyed by the first Christian church of Jerusalem. So let's stand and read today's scripture passage together, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenius and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, by way of uh, opening this passage to us. I'd like to focus this morning on just four aspects of of Stephen's life and his ministry, his particularly his choosing, his character, his courage, and his countenance. His choosing, his character, his courage, and his countenance. First of all, Stephen's choosing. Stephen is a a largely overlooked individual in New Testament history. Uh, Even if you've read or even studied the book of Acts in the past, chances are pretty good that you may not have spent much time at all considering, reflecting on Stephen's unique and essential role in the beginnings of the church and its mission. His name in Greek would have been Stephanos, Uh, It means victor's crown. So if you're sitting next to a Steve right now, just go ahead and high-five them. Um, And as we'll see next week, uh, his name had prophetic significance because he won that victor's crown as his life was cut short when he was stoned to death, uh, becoming the very first follower of Jesus to be martyred for his faith. 
And next, let's recall from our study last week that he was chosen to administer an essential ministry, specifically that ministry. If you go back and read verses 1 to 7 of chapter 6, that ministry was to provide care for widows, young and old, Greek or Jew, in a manner that was just and equitable. And that care included financial support, but it also included things like food and clothing, even housing. Uh, Stephen was chosen, along with six others, out of a church, as I mentioned, probably now exceeding 20,000 people. So you think about uh, seven people, seven men being chosen out of 20,000. Those men were exceptional men. When Stephen and those six compadres were selected from a church that that large and provided effective leadership to that ministry, taking it off of the shoulders of the apostles. It just contributed significantly to the expansion of the gospel message, the exponential growth of the church. And why? Because as we saw last week, the church grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Everyone in the church has something to contribute. Everyone in the church, every believer has a spiritual gift or two or three or four. And uh, and as we exercise those gifts, as we serve according to our giftedness, according to our calling, uh, the church grows, the church succeeds. And next, something that many people might miss about the larger purpose for which Stephen was chosen by God um is that he was chosen to propel the mission of the church beyond Judea. To propel the mission of the church beyond Judea. Remember that just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus had this to say to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And many people reading Acts 1.8 interpret it as a command or a commissioning. They, they kind of see it in, in league with the Great Commission, for example, in Matthew 28. Uh, I see it a little differently. It certainly could be interpreted as a commissioning, but, but don't miss that it was also just a direct statement of what was going to happen. It was a prediction of what would be the role of the apostles in the months and the years ahead. They would receive power, uh, and they would be his witnesses. They received that power uh, on the day of Pentecost. They would be his witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but also in all the province of Judea, and then Samaria, the province of Samaria, and then to the entire world. So how did Stephen's choosing propel that development. As I mentioned earlier, next week in chapter 7, we're going to learn about Stephen's martyrdom. And in the first verse of chapter 8, it's easy to remember, Acts 1.8 and Acts 8.1, Luke tells us that there arose on that day, uh, on the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And, and fancy this, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And Jesus' prediction in Acts 1.8 comes true. 
You will. You won't know how it's going to happen, but you will. Oh, the places you will go. As the Spirit of God leads you, as he moves you, as he nudges you. So we need to give attention to the life, the ministry, even the death of this remarkable, godly, overlooked man. And in my preparation for this message, I came across this comment on Stephen's ministry from John MacArthur. He said he was not a deacon. Speaking of Stephen, he was not a deacon, but he was put in charge of serving tables. He was not an apostle, but he performed signs and wonders. He was not a prophet but he was a great preacher. And we're going to see that third thing about him next week. Third then, for today, let's observe that, that when we look down on the role and the, and the influence of Stephen uh, from kind of the 10,000-foot view, we come to the realization that he was really chosen to be a bridge between the ministries of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Um, not that Peter's ministry came to an end, uh, it continued on, but in Luke's telling of the story of the growth of the church in the Acts of the Apostles, um, there comes a time when Peter begins to kind of recede into the background, and the ministry of the Apostle Paul increasingly takes center stage. And of course, before Paul was the apostle, was Paul the apostle? He was Saul the Pharisee. Uh, he was Saul the terrorist. He was Saul the persecutor of the church. And on the day when Stephen was stoned to death, remarkably, Saul was there. And it says he gave his approval to Stephen's execution. So it's ironic, isn't it, in the economy of God that Stephen became the forerunner of the one who gave hearty approval to those who crushed him beneath the bloody stones. So that's Stephen's choosing. Let's think now about Stephen's character, his character, because Luke really focuses on this. We learn, first of all, in verse 3, that he was a man of good reputation. A man of good reputation. In verse 3 of chapter 6, the apostles directed that the church should select from among them seven men, and the first prerequisite named was that they should be men of good repute. I mentioned in passing last week that this was among the qualifications later given by Paul to Timothy for elders in the church when he wrote, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And the implication was that there was a consistency between the man's reputation both inside and outside the church that spoke to an integrity of life. And so we can uh, understand today that Stephen was a man of integrity, a man of good reputation. Secondly, he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And to say that someone is full of the Spirit is another way of saying that they are spiritually mature. Paul later wrote to the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. More literally, in actual verb tense, it said be being filled with the Spirit. Uh, someone once said that each of us is as full of the Spirit as we really want to be. In other words, we have a we have a role to play in being filled 
with the Spirit. So what we understand then about Stephen is that he was clearly engaged in his own spiritual growth. He was engaged in in doing the things and engaging the spiritual disciplines that contributed to his ongoing spiritual growth. He was also full of wisdom. Wisdom, the Bible tells us, comes from a right understanding of who God is, rooted in the Scriptures, uh, not uh, our fanciful versions of who God is, but but the God that is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Wisdom comes from a deep reverence for God. It comes from a right relationship with God through personal faith in Jesus Christ and a life that's ordered according to the Word of God. All of those things, I think, were true of Stephen. Verse 5 goes on and tells us that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Biblically speaking, on one hand, faith is a gift, right? The faith that leads us to believing in Jesus Christ, receiving salvation, is the gift of God. It's not something we do. It's not something we can ever generate on our own. It doesn't come with the initial download when you're born. It comes with the download when you're born again. The Bible also prevents or presents faith as the product of obedience to God. So as we choose to obey God in, in the day-to-day of our lives, uh, and, and as we find him then faithful to his promises, our faith in him grows. So Stephen was full of faith, so we can safely conclude that he also lived a life of increasing obedience to God. In verse 8, we read that he was full of grace and power. And some scholars think that what's intended by this, the use of the word grace here is a, is a kind of a personal winsomeness. And if that's true, and I think it very well may be, then it would have been the result of Stephen allowing the Spirit of God and the grace of God to work graciousness within him. And, and I just think about uh, people I have known in, in my life that, that were the Christians who were the most winsome. I, as I think about that, I think, yeah, they, they were spiritually mature people, growing people. There are some people who claim to be spiritually mature who are just prickly personalities, right? And, and that winsomeness is not quite there yet. But the fruit of the Spirit is things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. I don't think the word winsome is in there, but, but the implication is clearly there. Of course, graciousness doesn't mean weakness either, does it? But it does mean that Stephen was able, Stephen was able to conduct himself to act, to relate in a Christ-like manner toward others, even when you and I give ourselves an excuse. That is, when he was under extreme duress, which we'll see in a small way today and in a much larger sense next week. That Stephen was full of power relates to the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit and then that he was a vessel through whom the Holy Spirit was able to work freely. You know, when you think about it, I don't know about you, I've been told that I'm full of it. Um, but if someone tells you you're full of it, you want it to be things like this, don't you? Uh, things like 
the Spirit of God and wisdom and faith and grace and power. In verses 9 to 10, we, we also get a glimpse of Stephen's courage, his courage. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenius and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, just a, just kind of a historical note here. Historians estimate that uh, there were probably over 500 synagogues in Jerusalem during the first century. Think about that. that that's a lot of synagogues. And Jerusalem wasn't really a very big city by our standards. The Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo identified the synagogue of the freedmen that Luke mentions here with a group of Jews that were taken captive and enslaved by the Roman general Pompey uh, in approximately 63 B.C., who were subsequently released and returned to Rome and later built a synagogue in Jerusalem. And, and that fact has little bearing at all on our interpretation of this passage today, but it is of passing interest. What may be more noteworthy is that the capital city of the Roman province of Cilicia, or its proper pronunciation in Greek would have been Kilikia, listed here, happened to be Tarsus, the birthplace and the hometown of Saul. And, and he may have been part of that synagogue, which, which may also explain why he shows up personally in this narrative. And in fact, it may be that Stephen himself was debating Saul the Pharisee. What's clear, and all of that's speculative, but what's clear is that a, a group of Jewish men from one or more synagogues engaged Stephen in a theological debate. And depending on what translation you may have in your hand, uh, some use the word argument. Uh, and we think of an argument as something that's rather heated. But the word that Luke uses here indicates that it most likely began, at, at least, as a civil discussion, as a civil debate. But in verse 10 of chapter 6, what we learn about Stephen is that he spoke with divine words and wisdom by the Spirit of God. You know, the psalmist said to God, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment, listen to this, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. If you're a warrior... Kind of an advantage to be wiser than your enemies? Think so. He goes on, he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. How cool is it to have more understanding than your teacher if you're a student? That might make you a smart aleck. Um, but you can go home and tell your kids, if you read your Bible, you'll be smarter than your teachers. But that, that's what he's saying. I have more understanding than all those who would advise me, all those who would teach me. Why? You're, because your, your testimonies are my meditation. 
Did you know that you can be a whole lot smarter and wiser than a whole lot of people um, when you regularly spend time reading and meditating on God's Word? Do you know um, that you will have greater insight into life, into eternity, into relationships, into all kinds of things, if you will do that. Describing the ministry that he shared with his companions, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But in fact, they had, hadn't they? And and those who, with whom uh, Stephen was debating on this given day were among those who gave hearty approval uh, to Jesus' crucifixion. And the growing chorus of complaint from the Jews and their leaders was that the apostles were attempting to put the blood of Jesus of Nazareth on them. And nevertheless, Paul said, revealing that secret and hidden wisdom, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, if it were possible that God were weak in any way, his weakness would still be stronger than men. And this was surely the content of Stephen's debate. And what Luke tells us is that Stephen's wisdom was irresistible and irrefutable, both irresistible and irrefutable. In other words, you're drawn to it, but you can't argue it. In verse 10, Luke tells us, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen was speaking. Speaking of direct fulfillments of Jesus' promise, Luke 21.15 says, For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. It's as if Jesus was speaking directly into the experience of Stephen. And apparently Stephen left his opponents stymied, sputtering, and again, Paul gives us insight into the nature of genuine spiritual warfare when he wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does that mean? It means that that we're not waging war the way everybody else does. We're not screaming. We're not, um, you know, beating our chests. We're not gnashing our teeth. We're just speaking the truth. And as we do that, as we speak the wisdom of God, the truth of God's word, we destroy arguments and every lofty, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, notice where his vanquished opponents go next. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, 
We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So first they began to argue with Stephen, but they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit that God gave him as he spoke. Secondly, thwarted in open debate, Stephen's opponents start a smear campaign against him. Verses 11 and 12. And then third, they seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the latter part of verse 12, and then produced false witnesses against him. They did to Stephen what they had done to Jesus. They followed exactly the same script. And those false witnesses brought a threefold accusation of blasphemy. First of all, in verse 11, blasphemy against God. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against God. Verse 13, blasphemy against the temple. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. In verses 11 and 13, blasphemy against the Mosaic law. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. This man never ceases to speak words against the law. And these were extremely serious accusations. Why? Nothing was more sacred to the Jews, nothing more precious than the temple and the law. The temple was the holy place. It was the sanctuary of God's presence. And the law was Holy Scripture, the revelation of God's mind, His heart, His will. And therefore, since the temple was God's house and the law was God's word, to speak against either one was to speak against God. Or in other words, to blaspheme. So let's take it seriously and look behind the accusations and ask the question, what did Jesus say, in fact, about the temple and the law? And what we find is, first of all, that he said he would replace the temple, not destroy it. Matthew 12, verse 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Referring to himself, something greater than the temple is here. You think about that, the (laughs) Emmanuel, God with us. The temple, the dwelling place of God among men. Dwelling place of God among his people. Something greater than the temple is here. Paul said to the Colossians, In Christ the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. In verse uh, chapter 2 of uh, John's Gospel, verses 18 to 22, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? It was on the day that he cleansed the temple. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice he didn't say, I will destroy this temple. But the implication there is, 
you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John says. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus said, first of all, a greater than the temple is here, and I'm going to replace the temple. Secondly, he said he would fulfill the law. Again, not to abolish it. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, occasionally I run into Christians that say, well, well, the law is now abolished. The, the law is now annulled. But here's Jesus saying, no, that's not what I came to do. I didn't come to abolish it. It's not going to pass away. In particular, Jesus resolved to lay down his life for us would actually fulfill all of the priesthood and all of the sacrificial system all at one time. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the writer of Hebrews presents Jesus as the high priest and also as the sacrifice. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he secured the atonement for all of our sin. He paid. He made payment final and in full for, for all of our failure to meet God's righteous standard. And so as we look to Jesus as our substitute, as we look to Jesus as our Savior, our sins are forgiven and we receive the gift of eternal life. That's, that's what Christians mean when we say saved. We're saved. We're saved from the penalty of our sin. And we're saved from the power of our sin. And one day when he comes, we, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. What Jesus taught then was that the temple and the law would be not destroyed, not abolished, but would be superseded. He didn't say of either the temple or the law that they were not in fact gifts from God in the first place. But rather, he says, they both pointed to one in one direction and to one person. He, he did say that they would find their God-intended fulfillment in him. Jesus was and is himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. Biblical prophecy tells us that sometime in the future, the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Jews believe they still need one. Not only that, but to affirm that both the temple and the law pointed 
forward to him and are now fulfilled in him is not to denigrate their importance, but rather to magnify it because they pointed us to Jesus. Paul said that the law was given not to save us, but to condemn us. He also said that the law was given as a teacher to lead us to Christ. So if there was any kernel of truth in the accusations brought against Stephen on this particular day, it may have been that Stephen was actually preaching Christ both positively and constructively as the one in whom all that the Old Testament foretold and foreshadowed is fulfilled, including the temple and the law. But they couldn't receive it. And so they did to him what they did to Jesus. They lied about him. They started a smear campaign against him. They produced false witnesses to condemn him before the Sanhedrin. Paul wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in that, he was echoing the words of Jesus, who said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, You may have already found, and, and I believe that we will increasingly find, that we are hated, that we are ostracized, that we're marginalized, that we're persecuted, simply for the fact that we are followers and worshipers of Jesus Christ. And I happen to believe that that experience is just around the corner here in the United States. I think we're just on the verge of that. It will seem irrational to us. It will be unexplainable. It will seem unjust. But Jesus also said clearly, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, I don't think we should go around looking for hatred. I don't think we should go around provoking hatred. I don't think we should go around looking for persecution. But if we live a godly life... It'll come to us. It'll come to us. Next week, we'll examine Stephen's powerful sermon in the presence of the Sanhedrin. But I I want to give you a sneak preview of coming events because at the close of that sermon in chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, he, he boldly spoke truth to power. You hear that phrase a lot these days. Speak truth to power. Most of it's speaking opinion to power. But Stephen boldly spoke truth to power. Listen to chapter 7, beginning of verse 51. This is, the, this is the summation of his sermon. You stiff-necked people. Isn't that nice? Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged. 
and they ground their teeth at him. Well, that will be then, that will be our study next week, but notice that as his opponents in today's passage are setting the stage for his condemnation, there's something special about Stephen's countenance. Verse 15, they all saw that his face was like that of an angel. They all saw it. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. It's not explained. Now, something we do know about angels is that they brightly reflect the glory of God. You remember in your favorite Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, and the glory of the Lord, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Right? At least that's the way it's quoted in Peanuts, right? Because that's Charlie Brown's Christmas, because that, that's the King James Version. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, so that they, they reflect the, look, the glory of God in whose presence they spend most of their time. And I don't know if Stephen's face was glowing. I think probably Luke would have told us that because we know that, for example, that when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God on Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments, he came back down and his, his face was like General Electric, you know, and he had to, he had to wear a veil over his face because he was so bright. It's like, you're blinding me, dude. Literally that. So I don't, I don't know if Stephen's face was glowing. Here's what I do know. I do know that sometimes you meet someone who's so full of the Spirit of God that their countenance also radiates His presence and His power and His grace. And I know you know what I'm talking about. That somehow what's in their heart just kind of gets expressed through their face in a very powerful way. And perhaps God was demonstrating through Stephen's countenance that he was present in the moment, that God was there and that God was giving his personal approval and his expressing his favor toward Stephen's life and his ministry. Well, we'll learn more about Stephen next week, but I wonder this morning, just in this brief exposure, whether the Spirit of God might be challenging your heart it might be provoking you to, to long for a deeper experience of the Spirit of God in your own life, of, of His grace and His presence and His power. A greater expression of His grace and power through your life. So let me close with this. Your conclusion. Your conclusion. Because... The need of the hour is for people like Stephen. Second Chronicles 16.9 tells us that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I don't know about you, but I, I think Jesus is coming real soon. Everything I know from the Scriptures and everything I'm observing in our world today tells me that He's right at the door. 
I also think that things may get a lot worse before he comes, if they're not bad enough already. And the great need of the hour is for men and women whose hearts are fully committed to Jesus Christ, to his church and to its mission, who have the the courage of conviction to speak the truth of the gospel to those whom he may be calling to himself in these last days. I don't think there's a lot of time left. And I know that there are people in your life and in my life who don't know Christ and who may never have the the chance to know him unless we make the gospel known to them. And as I look into my own life, I, I am dismayed at the lack of urgency. But we need to regain that sense of urgency because Jesus is coming. People we love are going to be left behind. And as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, uh, we look back to the cross where the final sacrifice for all sin was given. Uh, We look inward to our own hearts to examine ourselves. We look outward to our fellowship within the church of the redeemed. We look up because he's coming soon. And we look forward to that day when we will feast with him at his table in the kingdom of God, when when this little ritual that we do on a regular basis will become reality. And Jesus said, I, I won't drink this wine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. So on that night that Jesus was betrayed, And as he was about to go to the cross and secure our salvation, he was having dinner with his disciples and he took some bread. Probably didn't look a lot like this. But he took some bread and he broke it and he said, this bread. And and don't miss that his disciples were astonished at this. He said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Eat it, all of you. And then at the close of that meal, Jesus took a cup And remember that this was a meal that the Passover Seder, this was a a meal that these men had been eating with their families their entire lives. They understood the ritual. They, They knew all of the words. They knew every step. And Jesus disrupted the script. And he took a cup after the meal that was known as the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is the new covenant, the new deal, the new arrangement, the the covenant that God promised through Jeremiah. This blood, this cup is, is my blood. The ratification of the covenant 
And he said, drink it, all of you, whenever you drink it, remember me. Let's drink it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. for your sacrifice that was sufficient for all of my sin. And thank you, Lord, that your sacrifice was sufficient for the sin of everyone in this room. That your sacrifice was sufficient for everyone in this building, everyone in this city, everyone in this state, everyone in this world, Everyone, that it covered the enormity of all of the rebellion of humanity against you. The Lord, we realize today that it only becomes effective for those who look to you as their Savior, who are willing to confess and repent of sin who are willing to admit their need for a Savior to trust in Jesus Christ as the way and the truth and the life the only way to the Father and it seems so narrow and it seems so exclusive to the world yet it is life to those who find it. And Lord, I pray today for those who are within the sound of my voice here in this room or online, today might be the day that they trust in you, that they that you grant to them the gift of faith that leads to life, and that they might be brought into your kingdom and into your family. Commit that to you, Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our soon-coming King. Amen.